November 2020, and I'm beginning to wonder if sustained levels of outrage may not, perhaps, be beneficial to the human soul. Let me be clear, there are times and circumstances that warrant outrage, unjust treatment of the poor, systemic racism, and the ugliness of white nationalism. There are situations where our voices need to be heard, and we must be prepared to act, However, the daily cultivation of rage wears down the soul, whereby it moves from greater integration into a state of disintegration. At the writing of this episode of Rereads, we're in the days prior and days just after the 2020 election. Outrage seems to be the currency of the day, and I am exhausted. As I try to plumb the surface of my soul, I I wonder if the outrage has less to do with the environmental conditions of this life and present culture, and more to do with the frustration that I alone cannot change the upsetting political and cultural tensions that presently exist. The tension exists, to be sure, and I exist in the midst of those tensions, but how do I be present in the strife? but not swallowed by it. The ugliness remains, but I need to ask the question of who am I going to be in these days? I remember a day driving with daughter Emma, who at the time was in student government when her school was going through a particularly difficult time. I was driving her to a student meeting where there was to be potentially angry peers, anxious staff, and curious media. I said... Remember, who you're going to be in this situation is more important than what you say or do. I feel like we're in similar days where I need to listen to my own counsel, where who I am shapes what I say and do. Allow me to step back and share this particular reread and how it fits into the current climb. In the summer of 1984, I went to work at a summer camp outside of Santa Cruz, California. It would be the first of three summers that I would spend at Mount Hermon. Camp, as we would refer to it in the shorthand, was a life-changing experience. It was there I would make friendships that continue to this day. It was there that my creative spirit would be encouraged and given opportunities for expression. It was there I would meet my wife, And, on a much smaller scale, but still significant, it was there that I would be introduced to Fyodor Dostoevsky. Meeting Russian novelists was not part of my expectations for being a summer camp counselor. Yet, there was another counselor in 1984 who presented the idea that some reading can take the form of a, quote, summer project. With the brothers Karamazov in hand, my new friend Shrinker, a camp name for those unfamiliar with the culture, shared that this 900-page novel was his summer reading project. He simply referred to the book as The Brothers K. I was intrigued, and I began to wonder what would it be like to give an entire season of life to interact with the world of 19th century Russia. After that summer, I thought that I would take the challenge and devote myself to reading Dostoevsky. 
experience was similar to getting a new car. And now you begin to notice cars like yours that are all over the road. My first engagement with the Brothers K raised my awareness in how other writers and speakers made reference to this novel, even suggesting that it was one of the most important pieces of literature in the last hundred years. I had no idea of what was in store. I received some guidance in dealing with Dostoevsky, particularly with the names. Make names for the characters, my camp friend suggested, and heads up, the characters go by different names depending with whom they're interacting. Sound advice. For I found that Dostoevsky travels long in his approach to introduce the principal characters. The author imparts not just information about this family, but an emotional attraction or repulsion to the brothers and their loathsome father, who is most frequently referred to as Old Karamazov. The brothers are as follows. Dmitri is the oldest brother, who is ruled by the impulsivity of his passions and is most frequently his own worst enemy. A tragic and tortured figure who is locked in an emotional conflict with his father. Ivan, the second son, holds what seems on the surface to be a strangely tolerant disdain for his father, but actually feels a deep-seated hatred towards the older Karamazov. A former university student, Ivan's coldly intellectual skepticism expresses his antipathy toward the church. Yeah, there is also present some degree of warmth for his younger brother, Aloysia, a novice of the local monastery. It is Aloysia that Dostoevsky presents as the future hero of his novel. There is one last brother that is later revealed, the cunning Smirnikov, who is suggested to be the bastard child of old Karamazov. As I recall, my experience in first reading the Brothers K was filled with emotional memories, in that I recall the feelings of the book more than the details. This is part of the mastery of Dostoevsky in painting vivid characters that are equal to any creation of Charles Dickens. Old man Karamazov felt to me to be a greedy and disgusting sexual predator. Dmitri seemed unpredictable and unsafe in his anger, a person who frequently needed to be, quote, talked down. If Dmitri felt unsafe physically... Ivan felt unsafe intellectually, trying to sow seeds of doubt in his mocking catalog of humanity's great cruelties. Smirnikov left me with feelings suspicious of his obsequious manner as he lurked around the edges of the story. Rising above it all is Aloysia, who seemed safe and good and attractive. He was the kind of person you wanted to have in your life, a calm, quiet, and steady presence in a family who talked too much either in their rage or their cynicism. In rereading The Brothers K, I was reminded of what fed those long-standing emotional memories. There are truly horrible, as well as beautiful, people that are presented in Dostoevsky's work, a snapshot of the Russian culture of his day. While it's near impossible to deal significantly with this story in a 20-minute podcast, I would like to attempt to relate the general experience of reacquainting myself with these densely constructed characters. 
Aloysia, the third brother, seems to me to fulfill the role as the heart and soul of the novel. In fact, I would go so far as to say that my reread of The Brothers K offered me a figure, a guide, to better understand how one is to cling to the good in a wicked world. Aloysia is a person who changes the world, not through his overt actions, but through the purity of his own soul, to the degree that his sheer presence has a cleansing influence upon the filthy world around him. It is the powerfully quiet presence of Aloysia that has captured my thinking in rereading the Brothers Karamazov. Dostoevsky's initial descriptions of Aloysia introduces the reader to the spirit of this young man. A boy who, very early in life, had come to love his fellow man, and if he chose to enter a monastery, it was simply because at one point that course had caught his imagination, and he had become convinced that it was the ideal way to escape from the darkness of the wicked world, a way that would lead him toward light and love. As a child and as a boy, Aloysia was rather reserved, one might say uncommunicative. His apparently distant behavior was due to a constant inner preoccupation with something strictly personal. There was something in him that made people realize that he refused to sit in judgment on others, that he felt he had no right to, and that whatever happened he would never condemn anyone. So, when at the age of nineteen, chaste and pure, he was faced with the shocking debauchery in his father's house, he would walk away in silence when things became too revolting, but never show the slightest sign of scorn or condemnation. If it is possible, the term shocking debauchery may actually be an understatement in regards to the Karamazov household. Huge swaths of this book are devoted to the degradations of Aloysia's father and brothers. Yet, just as the stars shine brightest in the surrounding darkness, so does Aloysia's light shine in the lurid darkness of his world. In reading this previous description of Aloysia, it has given me pause to examine the posture of silence in contrast to judgment and condemnation. So I ask myself these questions. Does judgment and condemnation lend themselves to a better way forward as human beings? Specifically, does the output of energy that judgment and condemnation require exact a cost upon our souls and so deprive us of the intention towards loving action? Contrasting with this, does the silence of that voice within us to judge, to condemn, make room and give us a greater capacity for love of the other? Is silence a pathway to cultivate a healthy soul by helping one empathize with human brokenness? The contemporary spiritual writer Martin Laird presents the following ideas about the practice of silence. And in revisiting Laird's writings, I was reminded of Aloysia. Laird writes, Silence is living, dynamic, and liberating. The practice of silence nourishes vigilance, self-knowledge, letting go, 
and the compassionate embrace of all whom we would otherwise be quick to condemn. Laird goes on to suggest that it is in the practice of silence that we, quote, get some sense of the wound of the human condition. Aloysius' silence was not the cold judgment or disregard of his family, but an empathetic presence, a willingness to stand in the midst of human torment and suffering. In the chapter Dostoevsky entitles An Incongruous Meeting, an elder Karamazov and his three sons meet at the monastery to resolve the conflict that exists between Dmitri and his father, a conflict which on the surface seems to be about money, but is further complicated by the fact that they are both in love with the same woman, who, by the way, is also pitting the two men against one another. The meeting does not go well, and each family member's worst qualities are on full display. The elder Karamazov mocks the entire gathering by acting the ignorant fool. Ivan, in his atheism, suggests that in an amoral culture, all actions are permissible. Dmitri is baited by his father into uncontrollable rage. Aloysia stands silent and horrified as this repulsive scene is played out in the presence of his holy father, Father Zosima. After the wounded parties depart, and at the urging of his master, Aloysia is sent from the comfort of the monastery and sent from the side of his ailing Zosima to go to his family. Before he leaves, Zosima gives Aloysia a charge. They need you over there, so go. They need you more than I do. There's no peace there, so you help them out. Be really useful to them. And if the devil stirs them up again, say a prayer. And you know, son, the monastery is really no place for you. Remember that, my boy. When God decides the time has come for me to die, you must leave the monastery and leave it for good. Aloysia gasped. What's the matter? No, this isn't the place for you, at least not yet. I am sending you out into the world with my blessings, and you will be of great service there. Aloysia is to wrestle with this direction from Zosima. He's in conflict between his personal desires to remain in the monastery and his loving obedience to his master. Something else happens to Aloysia that coincidentally moves him to a greater acceptance of the elder's counsel. A young woman named Lisa confesses her love for Aloysia he begins to see that the giving and receiving of love is not confined to the monastery, but is a way of being that is available to all people. After some chaotic interactions with his brothers, Aloysia reads Lisa's letter in which she discloses her affection. Aloysia's response is one of joy as he sees God's good purpose for his life. Aloysia read it all, greatly surprised. He reread it twice, thought for a while, and suddenly began to laugh quietly and sweetly.
Then the sound of his own laughter made him shudder. He felt it might be sinful. But a second later, he was laughing again, just as quietly and happily. He slowly put the letter back into the envelope, crossed himself, and stretched out on the sofa. All that had been weighing on him was gone. Have mercy on them, O Lord. Save them, the unhappy and the tormented. Guide them on to the path that is right for each of them, according to your wisdom. You are love. You will bring happiness to all. Aloysia muttered and crossed himself and drifted into a peaceful sleep. Aloysia's role in the world, he begins to realize, is simply to be a praying, peacemaking presence. A role he can fulfill outside the monastery as well as in its cloistered setting. The prayer that Aloysia utters on behalf of those near him is to pray for those who may not be able to pray for themselves. Lord, have mercy. Save them, the unhappy and tormented. Guide them, and may they know your love. The Russian elder tells Aloysia, I am sending you out into the world with my blessings, and you will be of great service there. As I have said in previous podcasts, I've grown to realize that my call in this present season of life is to pray, to simply pray, pray for God's love and mercy upon people. As I consider the role that Aloysia fulfills in the Brothers K, I think of that call and its implications to be a praying, peacemaking presence sent out into the world to be of great service. There have been a few occasions where I've had the opportunity to retreat at a monastery. At one particular Benedictine house, I was staying in the guest quarters and was met by Father John, the guest master. Father John loved coffee and kept asking me in his New York accent if I like coffee, assuring me that they had good coffee here. You like coffee? It's good coffee. You should try the coffee. Oh, it's good coffee, isn't it? My new coffee-loving monastic friend was also available for spiritual direction, and so I made an appointment with the monk to share my story. In the time I spent with Father John, I shared with him both my desire and frustration to live out my spiritual practice and the realities of my life as a pastor and father of a very busy household. Stop, he said after a while. I need a bit of silence to pray. He was silent for some time while I waited. I was startled when he finally spoke and said, You are not a monk. I am a monk. You are a father, a husband, and pastor. Fulfill your calling in these things. With that, Father John prayed for me. Grabbing the two sides of my head, he put his forehead against mine and prayed over me, sending me back into my own life. Aloysia is a fascinating character that seems to float between the gritty machinations of his brothers and their father. While he is not persuasive in his verbal arguments, his presence makes some difference upon those around him. In one of the most famous excerpts of the novel, Aloysius sits before his brother Ivan, 
as the older brother lays out his case of what is known as the Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor is a selection of the novel, really a story within a story, that pushes forth the argument that loving, merciful God is seemingly absent in the midst of human cruelty. The examples that his brother Ivan presents are awful and disturbing, intending to both rattle the reader as well as Aloysia. In this story, the Inquisitor is visited by Jesus. Upon this encounter, the Inquisitor delivers his prosecution upon the Son of God, claiming that Jesus' refusal to defend his silence in the face of suffering is the cruelest act of all. Jesus remains silent, a silent presence who continues to demonstrate love. Aloysius' only answer to his brother's stories of cruelty is also the silent demonstration of love. Human beings are free agents who may accept or participate in that love or reject it as being inadequate to the human struggle. Aloysia obeys the call before him. I'm sending you out into the world, and you will be of great service there. He is to stand in the company of the unhappy and tormented, the skeptics and searchers of truth. Again, it is November 2020. The dark and difficult days of these last weeks, months, really, draw me to people who are just simply good, which is why I find the character of Aloysia to be so stunning and attractive. Aloysia is in the truest sense good, not good through his deeds, though that would prove to be true, but good in his person, his heart, his motivations, and his intentions as he interacts with his world. A goodness that is informed and shaped I quote the love of God as expressed in the love of the other. I am reminded of the psalm whereby the person of God is described as, quote, providing a circle of peace within the clamor of evil. In rereading the Brothers Karamazov, one wades through the great muck of its more sinister characters. A great deal of attention and pages are given to the tormented actions of the eldest son, Dmitri. Ivan's cynicism and curiosity of cruelties are also given many pages of attention. The deprivations of the father, old Karamazov, are laid out in great detail. The circumstances of his murder and the ensuing investigation leave the reader with uneasy questions. Is this a man who deserved to die? Was someone justified in ridding the earth of such a despicable person? Which is not unlike the question Dostoevsky asked in his novel Crime and Punishment. One could say that the Brothers K is a deep dive into humanity's worst instincts in a world where many of the ancillary characters are also experiencing poverty, disease, and injustice. It can be a pretty depressing book filled with Russian angst. Yet, in the midst of the darkness, there exists some shining lights. When one cannot change the world around them, 
Is it enough to choose what is right, good, and holy? That in our desire to be a praying presence in the world, we can, in the words of the psalmist, provide a circle of peace within the clamor of evil. As I remember my conversation with Emma, perhaps she is now telling me, remember, who we are going to be in the world is more important than what we say or do. I am still growing in my understanding that it is in the practice of silence that I am able to cultivate room for God and a greater capacity for loving kindness and peacemaking in the world. When I consider Aloysia, I can see one who is present to the hurt, struggle, and torment of his family, as well as to those who dwell in his town. Like a physician walking through a hospital ward, Aloysia stands with those hurting souls, not as a detached clinician, but as an empathetic healer. Alongside the fictional Aloysia, the very real figure of Thomas Merton was a monastic who practiced silence and solitude so that he may know how to care for other hurting and confused souls. Merton wrote a collection of reflections called Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. In that book, Merton prays as he seeks to understand his place in the tumultuous world of the 1960s a time filled with racial tension and violence, a disintegrating war in Vietnam, and a tensely ugly political climate. Merton prays, Father, I beg you to keep me in this silence so that I may learn from it the word of your peace and the word of your mercy and the word of your gentleness to the world and that through me perhaps your word of peace may make itself heard where it has not been heard for a long time. It's November 2020. I believe it is good to have guides who can help us navigate these dark and difficult days. The story of Aloysia and the brothers Karamazov is about learning to walk in the dark to pray for those who cannot pray for themselves, to be a circle of peace within the clamor of evil, to live in tension and in rapport with the heartbroken as well as the hopeful. This has been Rereads, and my name is Kent Place. Join us next month as we consider Ta-Nehisi Coates and his book, Between the World and Me. Until then, be well, and remember, you can never step into the same book twice. Mm-hmm.